Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. This week we are continuing in our series on the many Christmas traditions our culture has developed over the centuries. Our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, is back with a message about God's provision, and our theme verse this week is Mark 16, 15. You can find additional resources and our message archives on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or our Brookwood app. Christmas Eve, have you caught a glimpse of God during this occasion this year? Let me see some hands. How many have had a more, maybe a more spiritual experience? And how many of you are yet to go to the mall? Oh no. How many are going there this afternoon? Or crawling around at Walmart or something? I heard that. So we continue our series, which I've called Christmas Traditions. And throughout this series, we've been considering the ways that we celebrate this occasion. But really, more importantly, we're exploring what the Christmas story teaches us about God. You know, is God visible? in your Christmas celebration and what do you know about him what do you see because the incarnation of his son may have been the most focused moment of God's step in redemption at least the first one then the cross obviously the culmination so we see God acting in his nature clearly displaying his character and yes showing his personality in that very first Christmas. Now today's focus is the provision of God that was on display that very first Christmas. The theme verse that I've selected for us today is not from the what we call the Christmas story but it's from Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount and it says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously And he will give you everything you need. Do you believe that? Are there any conditions in it? Yeah, there are. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, that's one. And live righteously. Sometimes we're frustrated at what we consider God's lack of provision but we're not looking at our lack of living righteously, are we? So let's consider first, in terms of Christmas celebration, the origin of the Christmas tree. I have an affinity to Christmas trees. I sold Christmas trees. I'm from Augusta, Georgia, and I sold Christmas trees for five years in college and law school at a place called Fat Man's Forest. Y'all ever heard of that? (laughs) Fat Man's Forest. I I sold them and then I ended up being promoted to flocking them and then I got another promotion to driving them all around town and delivering them. 
and I kept that even after I ran the delivery truck into an uh, overpass. <laughs> but now, we, I do have a tree, but Leanne is, has become a Christmas tree designer, so I'm not, my opinions are not that important anymore. But <laughs> A Christmas tree obviously is a, a decorated tree, usually an evergreen conifer. You know what conifer means? It means cone-bearing. And it's usually a spruce or a pine or a fir tree. But it can be an artificial tree. How many of you have Christmas trees? How many of you have live Christmas trees? Ooh, the number's really down there. Um, I've heard that 80% today are artificial. But... The custom of erecting decorated trees for Christmas can be traced all the way to the 15th century. And the first place it was done, or the first group who did it, were guilds, you know, association of tradesmen or merchants in northern Germany and in Livonia, which is today the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia. And these groups of men, they were all men, in this, and some, some guilds were only single men. But anyway, certain of these guilds erected decorated trees in their meeting halls. Now, after the Protestant Reformation, 16th century, decorated trees were seen, but only in the houses of upper-class Protestants, which is interesting. And they were erected sort of as a counterpart to Catholic Christmas cribs, as they were called, but we call them nativity scenes today. So you had the Protestants, you know, they were so separated over the church, but they also separated in the way they celebrated Christmas. Now, some writers credit Martin Luther as being the first to bring a Christmas tree into his home. Other writers report that he was not the first to bring in a tree inside, but the first to add lighted candles to an evergreen tree. And both stories are without any scholarly support. Now, many researchers link Christmas trees to the 12th century Tree of Paradise plays. And these plays were performed in Catholic churches on December 24th to commemorate Adam and Eve's feast day. And these plays obviously depicted the creation of the first couple, also their fall into sin and their banishment from paradise. So they used a tree as a prop. And on that tree were, it was decorated with, what do you think? Apples, not fig leaves. Somebody take Jevy and Lynn outside. Give her some air. They were decorated with apples to represent forbidden fruit. Well, I should ask you what it represented. But also wafers to represent what? Communion. Eucharist in Catholic term. Now the play ended with the promise of the coming Savior and redemption. Now, after 1880, 
glassmakers in Germany discovered how to make blown glass balls and bells. And so red balls replaced the apples. That may be why red balls are so prevalent even today on our trees. Although not design trees, I've learned. But <laughs> yeah, all those old treasured old ornaments gone, out of style. But Christmas trees were introduced in North America in 1781 by Hessian soldiers. Again, these are German soldiers, mercenaries, who served with the British. And certain soldiers were stationed in Quebec to protect against American attack. But they influenced Americans with these trees. They were erected in barracks. And one report is that a captured soldier actually introduced the trees in the United States. Some other reports just say it was German settlers in the early 1800s. But we know that Christmas trees essentially come from Germans. Now, they were common in the United States. They became common by the 19th century, and they were aided again by a magazine article. There was a magazine called Goaty's Lady Book, and it had an image of an early Christmas tree that was published, and it was published in 1850. Reprinted it several times, notably in 1860, and then by the 1870s, Christmas trees had proliferated in this country. The interesting part of that image in the magazine was that it actually was stolen from the British royal family at Windsor Castle. But to be Americanized, they removed the Queen's tiara and they took off Prince Albert's mustache. <laughs> but Prince Albert was also German, so again, you see the German linkage. Traditional decorations have included garlands, some made with popcorn and baubles and tinsel and paper ornaments, boughs of greenery, nuts, candy, baked goods like cookies and gingerbread. I know not many of you do this today, but chocolate and other sweets like candy canes. Some of you may hang candy canes on your trees, but all these would be tied with ribbons. And of course, on the top would be an angel representing whom? Gabriel, or a star representing what? The star, the star of Bethlehem. So Christmas trees were illuminated by the 18th century, first by candles, and then they were replaced by electric lights by a vice president of the Edison Electric Light Company, precursor to GE, who was the first, Edward Johnson, to electrically light his tree at his home in New York. So that's the story of Christmas tree. I've illuminated you about the origin of Christmas tree, but let's move on to the more important matter of observing the work of God that very first Christmas. And we see in the incarnation that God provides for the needs of his people, especially those he has called to carry out his plan and who do and who fulfill his purpose. The provision of God is evidenced first by his support. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a young woman named Mary. Luke chapter 1. 
Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Remember, there was a promise to David, 2 Samuel 7. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this happen? I am a virgin. Now, Mary was likely only about 15. Could have been as old as 17. May have been even younger. So imagine a 15-year-old, if you've had one. I've had two 15-year-old girls. Imagine their response at the appearance of an angel. So you have the shock of this young woman at the appearance of an angel. Then you have confusion from his message. He clearly understood that this child was to be the Messiah. Every Jew understood about the coming of the Messiah. But perhaps instantly she was also concerned about what everybody would think and what they might say. She imagined their reactions to this predicament. If it was really true, if she wasn't imagining it. You can imagine after this happened, she must have been somewhat in shock and wondered, did I imagine this? Did it really happen? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? Now, because of the moral standards of her culture, Mary knew instantly she would be ridiculed, ostracized, mistreated, perhaps punished, even stoned for pregnancy before marriage. Now, Gabriel explained that her conception would, had occurred by the Holy Spirit, or would occur by the Holy Spirit. But then, I think if we, if we really dial in, we see God's compassion for this teenage girl, this young woman. Because the next thing he said was he identified a source of emotional support for Mary. Look at verse 36. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. She was beyond the age of bearing children. People used to say she was barren, but now she's in her sixth month. Now think about this teenage girl, overwhelmed by this news, frightened about what would occur. And the angel tells her about someone she's related to that she knew who was older, who was more mature, who would understand and believe her. Because she'd, she'd been unable to be pregnant. So here was another miracle in Mary's family. So Mary left within days, the text says. Traveled to see Elizabeth, who likely lived in Ein Karen, about 80 miles away. So it probably would have been about a nine or ten days walk over very difficult hilly terrain. Perhaps she offered to go help her and her parents, you know, were amenable to that trip. And it says that Mary entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, who was that child? John the Baptist. And Elizabeth confirmed Mary's experience before Mary even told her. So Elizabeth gave a glad cry and says, God has blessed you among all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Understand, see what she, she understands. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Now I want you to understand this. Have you ever been at a time when you needed someone, someone strong, someone stable, someone mature, who would understand, accept, and support you? Anybody ever been there? And that's what happened with this young woman. God gave Mary an older relative to offer reassurance, encouragement, and hope. Elizabeth believed Mary. Without Mary trying to convince her, you know, Mary must have thought she was going to have to go kind of plead with her and persuade her and tell her over and over because she didn't believe anybody would believe. But the angel said, here's another miracle going on in your family. Today, do you need someone to believe in you? Whatever situation you're in. Do you need someone who can see, who can recognize God's work in you? You know, in men's and women's ministry, we have mentors. People of all ages who are there to listen and encourage and pray with you, encourage you. You know, I think sometimes our culture is too segregated. Even the church is too segregated by ages. And the young miss out on the experience of the older. And the older can miss out on the energy and enthusiasm of the younger. And so I urge you, reach out. Mary stayed three months with Elizabeth, Luke 1, And then she returned home. But imagine how she felt walking back home. She's been comforted. She's been encouraged. She's enjoyed staying with her relative who completely understood, who was convinced that what was going on wasn't the product of immorality, but it was a work of God's wonder. But as she walked, she must have been burdened about what awaited her from her parents, her village, her betrothed husband, Joseph. You know, I think if her parents had believed the Bible would have probably reported it, don't you? They would have been the most likely ones to offer comfort, but you see nothing there. Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. It was actually betrothal. In order to break a betrothal, you had to go through a divorce. And he considered this, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah, or actually Yahweh saves. It's the same as the Hebrew name Joshua. For he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. God miraculously ensured that Mary would have a close companion, a husband who understood her situation, who would aid her and assist her, who would encourage and support her throughout her scandalous pregnancy. How many people do you think believed that this child was miraculously conceived? Do you think many? No. No. They doubted her morality, possibly, probably accused Joseph when he agreed to marry her. So these two suffered ridicule their entire lives. Don't miss that. But inside the home, Mary had support from one who believed because of the sensitivity of God. Are you in a difficult place today? Look around. Find the one that God's provided. You know, my hope for the church going, our church going forward, the church generally going forward, is that we would be a place where honesty thrives and understanding is easy to find. And that we're not so afraid of what each other thinks that we're willing to talk about weaknesses and needs and the help that we need. I believe this church is the best I know at accepting people who've made very big mistakes. But you have to step out and trust someone. Find that person. God's provided someone. I'm convinced of that. And it might be your spouse. It might be you need to open up the door to the one that you're already living with. But it could be a sister. And it might be a friend. And it could be a small group. But if we want to thrive in the Lord, this closed-in living Keeping your problems to yourselves has got to cease. This is a place of grace. And God has given someone for you. But you have to trust and confide. God also provided security. Jesus' birth threatened a dangerous man, a cruel king named Herod. So God provided protection for his son, Matthew 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph again in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. And this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. That's, that, that prophecy that's in quotes is out of Hosea 11.1, and it actually refers first to Israel 
being called from slavery in Egypt, but it also predicts through Israel's experience to God's son being taken to Egypt and then later out of it, fulfilling that prophecy. After God's warning in the dream, Joseph traveled 90 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt. Did he want to do that? No. But he did it to protect this child who'd been entrusted to him from this murderous King Herod. I mean, certainly Joseph wanted to return home so he could make a living. Some of you that are, that are, are craftsmen and um, you work in people's homes and you do repair work, poss- possibly as a plumber, as an electrician, how easy is it to move to a new town and start over? Well, Joseph, you know, we think of him as a carpenter, and he may have been a woodworker, but there's not a lot of wood in Israel. He, he was more likely a mason, and the Greek word technon refers to, to either word, Matthew 13, 55. So, you know, Joseph, here he is. Okay, he's, he's had this landed on him. He's married this woman. He's going to take care of this child. Then he's told to go to Egypt. There was no government aid in this day. There was no way for him to draw money in Israel and certainly not in Egypt. But what was most important was keeping the Son of God secure. So he relocated, and you know what? He had to relocate a second time. Look at Matthew 2, verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, who was also cruel, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family then moved to Nazareth. He wanted, he, possibly that Joseph lived in Judea, which was the southern, is the southern part of Israel. Galilee is the northern part of Israel, and that's where Nazareth is. Mary was from Nazareth, and it was probably a small town, maybe as few as 200, certainly not more than 2,000. But again, this move fulfilled another prophecy. This prophecy was known but it, wasn't, it isn't recorded anywhere in the Scripture, though it's quoted several times in the Scripture. So Joseph intended to return home, but instead he has to start over again to keep Jesus safe. God protected the lives of Jesus and his family, but what did it require? Sometimes we think that if God's in something, it's easy, right? If God's involved, this ought to be simple. It ought to be easy. It ought to be painless. I don't see any evidence of that. I see God's faithfulness always requiring our effort and our obedience. Joseph and Mary had to obey God's direction. They had to be compliant with his plan. 
But you know what? They were never at risk as long as they obeyed God. And neither are you. Do you know that if God's given you a calling, a task, a purpose, and you obey it, you're invincible. Did you know that? If God's given you a task, and you walk in it, and you obey it, you can't die. You know, I got to 60 years old quickly. But I'll tell you what, I believe this. And I'm diabe- I've been diabetic since I was eight years old. I don't have any complications. But I'm determined if God will keep giving me tasks, I'll keep trying to fulfill them. To give him a reason to leave me around. But if that's true of me, it's true of all of you. My assignments aren't more special than yours. All of our assignments are just as God-given, although some may be more public than others. But you know what? Give God a reason to protect you, to provide for you, to supply your needs as you obey Him and you walk in His Word and you live righteously and you seek to fulfill the plan, the purpose he's given you. Protecting Jesus' life was only part of the provision. This family also needed financial security, don't you think? I mean, like I said, they, they had no government assistance. Well, how do you think they lived on the move like this? You have an idea? I have an idea. Matthew chapter 2. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All of these were valuable, expensive items that could be sold to support the family financially. I mean, we think of the symbolic Reasons, You know, the myrrh symbolized his death. The gold symbolized his um, being king. Frankincense was worshipped, so it recognized he was God. Maybe, maybe those are true. But I'll say this. They were valuable. They would pay the bills. They could be sold to support this family. God cares about your feelings. God knows all of your needs. And He will provide for you as readily as He provided for Jesus and Jesus' family that very first Christmas. Our counselors will come. Counselors, you come to the front. They're here to pray with you, and if I struck a chord with you with anything I said, they're here to pray with you. They're here to anoint you with oil. We do see miraculous healing, not every time, but we ask God, and He decides. Last week, we prayed for Praveen Chakavarte, and he has 
1,000, I mean 10,000 children now that he's caring for, and a cyclone was headed their way. He texted me Monday night at 10.25 p.m., and he said this, Cyclone has passed, sir. He said, all are safe, although at some homes they did lose rice and firewood. Prayers are answered. Thank you was his text. Well, what can we do? Well, we pray. Are you a praying person? If not, it's time to start. You say, well, can we give? Yes, you, I mean, we have, we've made a major commitment to them. And if you give to Brookwood first, it lets us keep our commitments to this India project. But you can also give directly to set, through Set Free Alliance, if you like. I hope even now, as we look at the eve of Christmas Eve, you'll consider how to celebrate the birth of Christ in a way that honors God and blesses your family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know your word is true. Lord, you know the needs in, in every life, in every, on every heart, in every mind today. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet those needs, that you would offer the emotional support that's needed but you also provide all the practical help, Lord, whether it be protection or safety or financial support. Prove yourself, Lord, to be a faithful God and help us to respond as a faithful people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways you can connect with other Christians at Brookwood, or if you just have questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or you can call us at 864-688-8326. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed week.